right, well, good morning, everyone. We will get started because we'll have a pretty full class today. We have been experimenting with different audiovisual, and we're looking at whiteboards, so things will improve. We're trying to get this to be as uh, user-friendly as possible, so pray for the tech team back there uh, in that process. I passed Trump's motorcade on the way here, so I figured he was coming to Sunday school. Maybe, maybe he's uh, under that mask somewhere. I don't see his glowing orange hair, so. Um, we are gonna be talking about um, voting today and how we as Christians uh, should approach voting in general. Right now, I'd just like you to put that, put voting and politics out of your mind for the first five to 10 minutes. I just wanna go through some scripture. So I'll read some uh, passages there from Romans 14 and 15, if you wanna turn there. And then uh, we'll get into our topic. Dave, would you mind praying for us? Father, we thank you so much for this time together, Lord. I would ask that you would be with us. I ask you would be with Keith, just give him the words to speak, Father, on this very important topic. I ask, Lord, that everything we say and do would be honoring to you, Lord. And may you be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We covered Romans 14 the last couple years in Sunday school, so for a fuller explanation of that, you could turn back to our Sunday school log. But uh, Romans 14, starting in verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he made it anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. To verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Whoever has, verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Chapter 15, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, if by some miracle we have time for questions and comments, those will be at the end. And we decided not to put up the mic, so just shout them out and I will repeat them. Uh, I just want to cover three things from this text in general. Um, again, a fuller explanation uh, would take a lot more time. First of all, in the verse uh, one there of chapter 14, Paul mentions this word opinions in my Bible. And whatever these issues were they, were, they were dividing the body, they were causing consternation uh, personally for people, and then of course then it's spilled out into the body. And at least two categories were affected. We, we, the passage I read talked about eating meat, 
and then later drinking wine or observing certain days. So on the one hand, you had Jews who had come out of the Old Covenant system, very ritual system, uh, dietary laws. As they came to this new covenant that did give them freedom in these things, rise, Peter, kill, and eat, the vision in Acts. Uh, they had freedom, and yet as they ate this meat, their emotions and their memories were tied to what they've always known. And so they couldn't approach this meat with, with freedom, and they, they struggled, and, and perhaps they even knew objectively it was okay, but they just they couldn't do it. So they weren't giving thanks to God as we ought to do as we eat and drink and do everything. So they struggled, and so Paul is telling them, don't eat. You have doubts. Don't eat. That's okay. Then you also have people who are coming out of pagan worship. This meat, perhaps, was just worship to an idol, a sacrifice for an idol down at the local temple, and now it's being put on your plate. And maybe they're struggling because they came out of that, or, or their logic is sound. They said, well, the more I eat this, the more this becomes a business, and maybe I'm supporting idol worship. Very reasonable positions. But in this case, Paul is saying, you are free. The new covenant is clear. You are free to eat this meat. There's nothing about meat, nothing that goes into the body that will defile you. But if you have doubts, if you struggle, if you can't worship God and give thanks to God in living out your freedom, then it's the right thing to not do it. So on the one hand, it is right that you can eat it, and yet the real right thing is to abstain in how you practice. This word opinions might throw us off because they're not mere preferences. We're not talking about liking chocolate or vanilla. These were, these were things that, as Paul himself says, I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that all things are clean. There is a right decision here. There's nothing right about chocolate or vanilla, right? But there, in this case, if you really want to have a theological debate, the correct right position was what the Strong Brothers saw, it's okay to eat the meat. And yet, the broader goal was, would be to have a clear conscience and to have unity in the church. And that whatever you do, you do it to the honor of God. The one who eats, eats it to the honor of God. The one who abstains, does it to God. And that's the bigger issue. As well, these opinions weren't really trite issues. Right? Sometimes we joke in our circles, ah, we get to eat, drink, or chew and go with girls who do. We're not like those fundamentalists over there. Well, this does apply to that, past, that issue, those issues, but th these were issues that were much more ingrained, again, in how they worshiped and how they lived out their faith. And I, I've had a hard time thinking about what is the best, you know, modern-day application of this. I have a few ideas, but we won't go down that road. These are things that made your brother grieve. He says, do not destroy the work of God by what you eat. You're destroying your brother's faith by being so presumptuous that you can just live out your freedom and flaunt it and not love your brother. So the supreme goals in mind here are, number one, we want to honor God. We don't want to follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas. We want to, to our own master, we will stand or fall. We want to love our neighbor. There is a way in carrying out what is, quote, right, that is wrong. <laughs> it's a wrong way to carry out what is right. If, if what you do is not love and is not perceived as love, you are actually sinning. What you consider good is now spoken of as evil. And we want to promote unity. So 
as in many ways in a body, we need, in a marriage, in any relationship, you need to submit your own personal desires, your own passionately held beliefs for the sake of higher unity. And one way to do that is not just to, okay, I just won't bring meat to my friend's house. It's to actually encourage them. If I'm going to someone's house back here and, um, you know, I, maybe I bring some meat for a potluck and they say, whoa, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't feel free to do that. It, it's not like, okay, I'll just put that away. I could actually turn to my brother and say, God bless you that you have doubts in this area. God bless you for following your conscience and for serving God to the utmost. We, had, we, we could even encourage people in ways that we disagree. Now everything's going well here, and then Paul has to throw in, a ver- in verse 5 here something that kind of threatens to derail his whole thesis. He says that we should all be fully convinced in our own mind. Wait a minute, Paul. If we want unity, we just want to get along. Why don't we just like not talk about these things? Why don't we just, you know, we'll save that for, for a men's group. We'll save that for a small group discussion. No, he's saying there, these issues ought to be thought about. We have to consider them. We have to pray about them. We have to actually come to our own opinions, come to our positions. Even though that threatens, and I assume part of that process is not just you and your Bible. You're going to be talking about these things with your friends. And you're going to want to, want to know, what is the Bible saying this? Where do I have freedom? And that discussion, it might sound like it, it promotes disunity, but he's saying no. We don't promote unity by avoiding truth, by avoiding subjects. God is the God of every area of our life. So to think about them and even have a passionately held dis, uh, position is okay. But there's clearly a way to do that that loves your brother and creates unity and worship for God. So we need to make sure our conscience is informed by God's word. But in the end, that's really all you have. In the end, you need to follow your conscience. I I can be passionate with someone that I think they're looking at a position wrongly, and yet in the end, they are going to be held accountable to God. And to, to go against your conscience is sin. If you can't do something in faith, it is sin. And so I'm going to try to persuade them, depending on, on what type of the issue is, I'm, I'm going to command them if I don't think it's a liberty issue. But in the end, I have to leave them to them and God, right? Ultimately, God is their judge, not me. Now, the other problem is it's not necessarily clear what subjects fall into this liberty category. Even in this, own t- this text, you have one person observes one day greater than another. Now, if I don't believe in a Christian Sabbath today in the New Covenant, I'm going to read that verse and say, look at that. There's my proof. I don't have to observe one day above another. And so I'm going to see in my own mind that I'm the strong brother. And someone who's, who, who worships or sees Sunday as a Sabbath is the weak brother. But it's someone who says, no, the Ten Commandments are still in effect. One of those commandments is the Sabbath. This is not an issue of liberty. That brother is going to come to me and say, Keith, I know you love the Bible, I know you study this, but I need to tell you that you're wrong. You're disobeying a clear command of God and you are in sin. You can see how two people could look at that issue in a different way. And so just the fact that we have this category of liberty doesn't clear up some of the issues. And I think we'll see that as we get into politics a little bit. 
The opposite of liberty would be binding conscience. What do I mean by that? Well, at some point, something becomes less and less a liberty issue. It becomes more clearly biblical as a position, and you start really talking about it more. You start trying to persuade your brother. Uh, Tim might say, this is a point at which I am going to preach on this subject. I'm going to persuade you. In the case today, is there possibly a case where it would be proper for a pastor to to tell you that you ought to vote in a certain way, right? Is there a, is there a theoretical you could get there? Eventually, we would call that sin. I, one of my best friends would say that the issues on the ballot box are so important that you, are, you need to repent if you teach a lesson like this. If you give the, a, a liberty to this subject, you, you're in sin, and you need to repent. And if it's not a liberty issue, he's right. And that's why it's important to figure out where this line is. John MacArthur, I think, who has been, for most of his career, quite apolitical. In fact, he used to really preach against the religious right and moralism um, and, our, and our, our reliance on government. And this year he has said a true, or I don't know if I'm, I don't want to misquote, a mature or a true believer, something like that, will never vote for a Democrat. He's clearly changed his stance. So something along the way, he now thinks this issue has come out of the liberty issue and into a biblical clarity and command. And so I'm, I'm going to take the position today that it is an issue of liberty. And I know some of you may disagree with that. That's okay. I want to present some of my case to you. And even if I'm wrong in that, I think these, this passage gives us some, some great wisdom in how we would interact on these issues and how we would think about our brother and our sister. Now, in our church, we're quite uh, gospel-centered. We like to think we are, and we do strive for that. And so, we've seen this before, maybe concentric circles. At the, at the very center, the things that are most important to us maybe are gospel issues. Maybe you can't read that, that's okay. And then our church would have, you know, you could draw multiple layers here, but we have another layer. We wouldn't hold all issues in equal contention, but as a confessional church, we actually say, look, there are certain issues that we don't demand that you believe them to be part of this church, but that's how we're going to teach. We're going to protect because these are important enough issues. And as you further get away and away, eventually you're into other issues. And you're into opinions and things like that. And it'd be my contention that voting is certainly out here. I mean, the Westminster doesn't really tell us about voting, does it? So I think I'm pretty safe on that. And so I think someone can very easily come into this church from lots of political persuasion, and through the preaching from the pulpit, they would feel very comfortable where they're at. Um, I'm not so sure that's true in our discussions. I find myself in discussions where everyone there assumes my politics and the politics of everyone around them. And I, I want to warn you about that. If, if, a, if a new person came into our church or a young believer, I don't... If I'm right that voting is a liberty issue, that's not something you can just assume in your group. If someone in our church is going to vote for Biden next month, would they feel comfortable in your presence admitting that? I can tell you some people don't around some of you. And I want to warn you against that because I think that's a problem. All right, so some of this will be my closing statements. But let me say some of it up front because I know I'll run out of time. I'm not sure voting is the most direct application of Romans 14. That's not what I'm saying. But it, it is one of those issues. It's not a chocolate vanilla issue. It, 
it really overlaps with our worldviews, with our theology, um, with what we, we think it means to love our neighbor. And so these aren't trite issues. Uh, and by the way, politics is a great way to get to the gospel if you do it in a right way. Let's say the ballot booth is not a religious litmus test that either confirms or denies our faith or even our maturity in Christ. I don't think, just like in Romans 14, the, when you say strong and weak, that's not a strong and weak brother in the sense of their maturity. That's on that issue, they have a conscience issue. That weak brother on eating meat could very well be a, quote, better Christian than you, strong brother. They could be living out a stronger devotion to God and not passing judgment on you while you're there casting doubt on your brother who abstains. And so I would say the ballot booth is not a place to bring in any kind of litmus test. And I don't think our election should be bigger than it is. We have a master. We have a sovereign God. No matter what you want to happen next month, whatever the results of that election should not shake your core. If you are living in fear of next month, you have a spiritual problem. No matter where you stand on the issue. Do we really trust God that he's over the affairs of men? And don't be such a team player. Don't be an, I, you know, I vote for Apollos and I vote for Paul, I vote for Cephas. No. If, if the way you think and the way people hear you, if you talk more about Trump than Jesus, if people think you're a Republican more than you're a Christian, that's a problem. That is my passion in this subject. And I know I'm, I mean that to go both ways. So study the issues, be convinced, but then talk about it and, and work for those goals in a right way that preserves unity and honors Jesus. All right. First question we, should ask, we can ask is, should Christians vote? In light of Romans 14, can I stand up here and say that you should vote? Well, there's no clear, direct command in Scripture to vote, is there? I mean, the New Testament doesn't even contemplate the fact that Christians would be in a majority, or, or a, you'd be in a society that would be highly influenced by Christianity. It, it seems to me all the examples we have are a very small splinter group of Christians living in oppression either from Jews or pagans. And so it's, it's tough to jump to today and say, how do we apply these scriptures today? And I think that's one reason why we have a lot of disagreement among mature Christians. But in, in light of this, so I wouldn't, I, I don't think I can say it's a sin if you don't vote. However, the way I would persuade someone is, I would say, okay, what clear biblical commands do I know that I can say to my brother and sister, and then make my case how that will apply to voting. And that's a good lesson of how to, how to handle these, quote, opinions. So Paul is very clear, even though there are issues of opinions with eating meat or not, it's not an opinion that you love your neighbor. That's a clear command. So let's start there. Clearly, we are to love our neighbor, and we are to do justice. So I can make the argument Think of the Good Samaritan. We talked about that last summer a little bit. There's a principle in loving your neighbor of proximity. Or think of the Lazarus who died, Lazarus who died at the rich man's gate. Those who we naturally see in our normal orb of life, we have a higher responsibility for. 
right? And then, you, of course, you could take that responsibility to the ends of the earth. But we are most accountable, obviously, for our own families, for our neighborhoods, people we would naturally pass on the street, right? And there's a practical sense of that. I can't get to every homeless person in the city, right? But if I pass one every day, I've got a responsibility, an opportunity on my doorstep. And so in, in, in a case where we get to vote, we actually have some control, right? We have the ability to affect something when we get to vote. My brothers and sisters in Pakistan don't have that, right? In other countries or in other times of history. So it's kind of a moot issue in, in one sense. When I think about this, though, I, I feel a little rebuked because I will tend to be the guy who thinks through all of my issues at a national and global level, and right? It's very easy to pontificate on social media and do nothing about it. I mean, mathematically, your, your vote mattering is much nil, right? It's not how we make decisions, but that's the truth. Particularly if you're in certain states, if it's solidly red or solidly blue, your vote almost doesn't matter. And it happens to be a swing state this year, so it may matter. But what about local politics? Every four years, I go to the ballot box and I cast votes for people I've never heard of. So if I'm really going to be convinced in my own mind and think through these issues, I'm probably guilty of focusing on some national election without the local things, the things that I actually might be able to, to touch and do. And some of you are involved in our local community in a way that is uh, a really model. And I, I know I, that's an area I need to grow in. What about to do justice? There are things that you can't do justice in apart from the government. I mean, the freedom, uh, freeing of the slaves was a big example of right, that, right? We could have kept slavery as just some moral issue or some political issue that the church doesn't touch, but the only way to affect change and do justice in that realm was government action. And so I would make the, the plea, if, you re, if you're really going to carry out the biblical command to do justice uh, and you have the ability to vote, then I would encourage that. In a representative democracy, it's interesting, that the Bible has a lot to say about rulers. And in a representative democracy, we are actually the rulers as well as the ruled, right? We get to choose the rulers. And so if, if governments and rulers are actually held to account by God, which I think I could show, then we're gonna be held account to some extent. In the garden, God gave dominion uh, of this world to us, right? The pinnacle of his creation. And this is a way that we could carry out that mandate. And there are other arguments I could get into. But the, the, that's the way I would try to persuade someone. I'm not going to come in and say, you should vote, or you're sitting. But I'm gonna, I want to tie it to these other things. And it's possible you're a very active voter. You're very involved politically. And yet you don't even think about your your mandate to care for God's creation. That not, has nothing to do with why you vote. You might vote because you want to keep more of your money, right? That's not a, a godly motivation whatsoever. <laughs> so you, you, can, you can vote, which I think you should, for wrong motives. And then I do just need to recognize, in light of Romans 14, as passionate as I am, as I think you should be when informed on these issues, and you should vote, there will be people who won't vote, and they will give biblical arguments. First Thessalonians 5.22 says that we should abstain from evil. So some Christians see two evil choices on the ballot, and they're not going to participate. 
I, I can't ultimately fault them, right? They're trying to be biblical and be biblically sound. Before their master, they were stand or fall. And so again, should you vote? I'd say is a liberty issue, but with some strong persuasions from clear biblical um, commands. So that's just an example. So now we're going to jump into a little bit of some of the, the details in that voting process that are maybe are a little further, maybe a little more contentious as well. I'm going to use three Ps to get there. First of all, at the bottom here, whenever we talk about these topical issues, this is a rubric we've used. We want to be biblically faithful, culturally conversant, and pastorally sensitive. So we want to know where the Bible stands, and we want to be clear as we're talking that we're tying our positions and our passions to the Bible. But we want to be able to converse these things, and, and Dave just went through a whole series on apologetics. This is a great chance for apologetics. If the people in your life are interested in politics in the election, what a sad waste of an opportunity not to use that to talk about kingdom priorities instead of just jumping on some red or blue bandwagon. And we want to be pastorally sensitive. We, we know we have brothers and sisters who will disagree with us in this. And so we, we need to deal with them and deal with the issue a pastoral way. And part of that is we care about their heart. I have an unbelieving relative. Every time I visit him, he wants to goad me and get me into political arguments. Oh, and I just, for a while I, I would jump in, found out that was stupid, and then I would avoid it. Well, now I'm kind of guilty of not using opportunities. So every time he says something, I'm looking for that moment that gets to a worldview implication, that gets to why does he feel so passionately about a certain way? And say we have different views on how justice should work in our society. I want to commend him for caring about justice. He's an unbeliever, but for the image of God that's on his, you know, he, he's made in the image of God, and he has a sense of justice. And I want to get that eventually, hopefully, to the gospel. So the three Ps. The first one should be pretty obvious. This I think people think about the policies, right, or the positions. And so there's a whole slew of things that are, that are typically talked about in the political realm that are really worldview issues and touch and overlap with kingdom priorities in the Bible. And so go through, go through those lists, and don't just stop on the ones that you tend to want to think about. I, I have, for much of my life, been a single-issue voter on abortion. I'll just admit that which I, I think I could defend that position. However, I have to admit, I think being that way has somewhat made me lazy on some other issues. And I've been in the last two years trying to think through these other issues I've kind of ignored. It kind of didn't matter to me, partly because I'm not voting at the local level, right? In one sense, you could say your position on abortion for a mayor or a governor doesn't matter all that much, right? Because that's not going to really affect the law right now. Um, maybe I'll live in Britain one day and isn't really an issue between the parties. Now I've got to start thinking about other things, right? But also, I, I kind of tend to hear an issue, say on, I don't know, racial sensitivity or things that um, the pro-life side of the ballot tends to have a position on, I just kind of take their position. Oh, they must know what they're doing because they're pro-life. Well, that, that's, that's kind of shallow and lazy. Um, and there probably some, could be some critiques from the other side that I really need to listen to and think about. 
So one way to do this is to translate kingdom priorities into action and to ask things like, what does my brother need? I'm called to love my brother and love my neighbor. So how does my vote, how do these specific policies and positions relate to loving brother? And that's why I should vote for an issue, right? I should not be voting for an issue out of self-interest. I mean, that's rampant in a representative democracy, right? That's how most people vote. This is the issue I care about. It affects me. Okay, but that should only be true if it affects you in a way that translates to loving others, right? We should not be voting for what is necessary gives us the most money or even potentially gives me the most freedom and, and protects my rights. I think sometimes we're too much on that bandwagon. Now, if you in your mind are so tied to freedom and rights because it translates into something that is good for your neighbor, then fine. But then when you talk about that issue with your friends at work, make sure they know that. Um, an issue like um, caring for the poor. We, everyone in here is commanded to care for the poor. That's a biblical command. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the best way to care for the poor is through a big government program or save my money so that I can give to charity. You could see Bible-believing Christians take both positions, right? In the end, that might tell them to vote a different way, and yet hopefully as a believer, your motivation is love neighbor. And I just think through my research, I've been convinced, I really think this is the best way to do it. So probably the two greatest hypocrites in this are the conservative who doesn't give generously to private charity, because that's what they argue for, or the liberal who cheats on their taxes, <laughs> right? I think we should have, have a lot of taxes and big government programs, and then I'm going to cheat and not give my fair share. So again, I, I want everyone in this room to be hit and to be challenged at the heart level. I care far more why you vote, why you came to your position, and where you check your box uh, next month. Now, there are some clear biblical positions in play here, right? I think I can make a clear biblical position. Abortion is murder, and we should not encourage it. Um, there's a biblical definition of marriage. There are only two genders. All sorts of issues that are clearly biblical. So when, when I'm saying that you have liberty way, the way you vote, I am not saying that you have liberty on every issue that's in play. But take marriage, even marriage, we would probably all agree on the biblical definition of marriage. But I bet we have disagreement in this room how much business the government has in, in marriage, in our society, right? So we could be agreed on the biblical level, on the moral level, like marriage, and yet disagree on how to carry that policy out. That's my point. Don't conflate those things too much. And the way you converse about that is really important so that people around you who hear you bloviating in the corner know you have a good heart and you're just not selfish. You don't want just your way. There's just a way of talking about this and, and thinking through them. I could go through lots of examples there. Now, there's other issues that I think the Bible would be less clear on. Immigration, specific tax rates, the environment, right? I, we are to care for God's garden, but what does that exactly mean? Romans 13 is clear that the government is, governing authorities are supposed to be given taxes so they can look after your good. But what, what level is that? Does that tell me what the right tax rate is? No. Does the Bible even talk about federalism? 
Does it care what the Constitution says? I mean, unless you can tie the words of the Constitution to the Bible, I'm, in my political world, I might be interested, but in my Christian world, I'm not. In my apologetic world, I don't care. I want you to be challenged to take your positions to the Scripture. Seek the prosperity of our own nation. Jeremiah 29. At the same time, all nations matter. Think of Jonah. So what does that mean in foreign affairs? I don't know. <laughs> Where you stand on, on certain wars or getting involved in, in different places, I don't know. All right, the second area that affects our vote is the person or the people involved. Some of you just kind of care about over here. When you hear the name Trump or Biden, you don't even think of that person. You just think about this list of policies that are going to follow. Other people hear those names, and the face comes to their mind. And it, it's this big thing, and it makes the policies a lot less important. Some of us are just wired differently. Now, when we vote for an elder, well, when Israel voted for a king, their personal character was of utmost importance, right? If we had the choice between a godly man who is eh, so-so on teaching, but we had a really questionable, a man of questionable ethics who was just a great order, I hope to God we would vote for the righteous man, right? So the question then is, does that apply when we're picking a politician, a governor, a mayor, a president? Christians will have different views on this. It doesn't matter as much to me. But here's a really interesting stat, though. In 2012, 70% of white evangelical Protestants reported that personal character was critically important to how much they could trust their candidate to go. 70% said personal character was critically important in making their decision. Four years later, in 2016, supposedly that same group of people polled dropped to 30%. 30% now think that personal character is important. Now you can say what you want about pollsters and who's a white evangelical Protestant. Some of them aren't even Christians. Fine. You cannot go to a stat like that to me and say something's not behind it. Clearly, there are people who think that they are um, they're principled, right? The they personal character. But really, what's driving them, maybe subconsciously, is I want this guy to win. And right now, he's got the personal character trait, so I can use that to my advantage. And then all of a sudden, it, four years later, oh, I want this guy to win. He's not so good personal character, so I'm, it's not so important to me. Maybe they matured in their views. I don't know. But that's, that's his telling stat. And that's the kind of stat that makes some people think, what are these? What do they really care about? They've been telling me this for years, and all of a sudden it's fallen off the plate. So just know that. Know that people are talking about that. I have an answer for that. The truth is, we're always going to have two sinful candidates, two imperfect parties, or more than two. And so it, it becomes a tough choice. I think the, the third thing that it maybe isn't so obvious as the other ones is the other P that I think we, we talk about is practicalities. I ran out of room to say the practicalities. And other people, thanks Greg, other people don't even think at that level. They think, well, I've got two choices and one's gonna win, so 
What's the lesser of two evils, right? What's, what are my choices? What am I supposed to do about it? And so one person's conflicted and one's not. There's other practicalities in play. Take abortion. So I think if abortion was the only thing on the ballot, I think I would encourage preaching from the pulpit. You need to vote for the pro-life candidate, if that's the only issue. Obviously, it never is. I know Christians who agree with me on abortion, but they might use logic like, well, um, for 30 years, or it's been longer than that since Roe, right? 40 years, 50 years almost. That's when I was born. Uh, 50 years, nothing's changed. How many Republican presidents have we voted and it's still, it's still the law of the land, right? So maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree here. Um, maybe the situation is, well, the court is so packed one way or the other, um, it doesn't really matter. It, you know, and we can deal with that issue in four years, but right now, because it's not going to matter for the next four years, I'm going to concentrate on some other issues. There are even some statistics out there that say more abortions happen under Republican presidents than Democratic ones. I don't know if those are accurate. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that I can see a Christian maneuvering to a different decision than me. We start at the same moral level, and yet in their mind, it, it, it goes a different direction. Or maybe they put these other three issues, these three issues together outweigh the issue of abortion. As I start, I, I'm just saying that I, I'm certainly in my own mind at a liberty issue. I have to, I can passionately debate this brother. I have to let them follow their conscience. And, and give them that freedom and encourage them and love them. In fact, even tell them, you're convinced to vote this way? I go in peace, brother. Go vote with a clear conscience and give glory to God and trust him for the future. I want to be able to do that, not just grip my hands because I can't convince somebody. Um, lots of other practical issues that, again, depends on how you maneuver things. Another practical issue is how much time do you want me to invest myself to know all these issues, to know all these candidates, all these people? I mean, at some point, how much time is it worth? So you might be a political junkie and, and really, you know, listen to hours of podcast a week and you go to someone who's not listened to one of these things and you're just enraged that they're not thinking through this. But, I mean, for every hour I'm on a podcast about some national election, I probably won't influence. How much could I be doing something? Uh, in action in Las Vegas, you know. And so I think when you put all the different policies together, the personalities involved, the personal character, and all these practical questions, I think we're clearly in the realm of Christian liberty. I can't dictate too strongly, but I do want to help shepherd and mentor others in thinking through these in biblical ways. And I think the way we communicate is really important. We should have a posture of humility and teachability. We should be listening to others. We should be asking questions like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me how you arrived at that position. Or what's important to you? And of course, no candidate is our king. That ought to be clear to ourselves and to those who listen to us. Make sure we talk about policies as kingdom priorities and not party platforms. And of course, use, use people's political interest to get to those worldviews, get to issues of morality, get to the gospel uh, in the long run. Much more I'm forcing myself to skip through, so I've, I've left a little bit of time 
Um, please keep your comments or your questions specific on if, if it's a liberty issue for people to vote through. This would be an interesting discussion. What if, what if you agree with me that right now we're at, a, we're at a place of Christian liberty? Where would that trigger line be for you that it's no longer a liberty issue? That's hard to think about. Don't spend all day thinking about it. Maybe it's a wasted hypothetical, but I, th I think I would say, in theory, there is a place where it's no longer a liberty issue. I don't know where that line is for me. Comments or questions that edify the body? I was just thankful for the comment Greece that I saw yesterday because we voted. And think about how many countries where uh, people go to war over the idea of, of political realms, and it was peaceful, and obviously there were people there that disagreed about who they were going to vote for, but there was no bloodshed, and, and the process was peaceful. So just, it's a, so thankful that we're at a place that we can vote, and realize what a privilege that it has been in history, and in the world today. Anyone else? breaking out the issues like you've uh, talked about specific policies, there's you know, liberty issues there, and then there's also the liberty issue of the priorities of those policies. So using that as a framework I think can be helpful to discuss how someone's coming to a position so that we can be helpful to our brother in helping them be convinced like we're commanded to do in order to be consistent with our conduct. Josh says, don't take everything at once. Kind of think through each issue on its own. And then work at prioritizing those issues. Uh, and you probably have a lot more fruitful discussion. Now, one book I read this week was by David Platt, Before You Vote. Great book. There's issues I actually with David on, but this book, I didn't see anything wrong. Uh, Before You Vote, David Platt. Um, it's seven questions every Christian should ask before they vote. Pretty much hit him here, so he agrees with me, so we're good. But he, his seventh question is how you, is, goes to Josh's questions. How do you do this? Like he, he has a little practical thing where he, he kind of makes a grid and he says, all right, let's look at two columns, things that are biblically clear and then practically achieved th through our politics. So maybe something is really clear, but there's no way we're going to get there. Or something is less clear, but we can do something about. And, and he uses it in a way to help you maybe prioritize your issues and come to, come to a decision. Anyway, you probably have to look at it to understand that. But yeah, it, this is not necessarily easy. For some of you, this is easy. Your, your top four or five priorities, you can biblically argue why they're important and they line up with one party. And you have just zero consternation on this. And so, so you, you're in threat of somebody talking about the other way or maybe abstaining from voting because they can't vote for either party. And it, in your own mind, it's just that doesn't make any sense everything lines up this way, how can you possibly go that way? And that's why I say discuss it and listen to them. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, you know, when Moses was born, the midwife's role of first defying the Pharaoh and then lying to him about it, do you think that was a liberty issue? Why or why not? So asking, is it liberty for the wives with Moses? Midwives. To 
the midwives to lie about it. Right. So the midwives, when Moses was born, he was hidden, right, by his parents. And then, so number one, they disobeyed uh, Pharaoh's command as the, the God-appointed leader of Egypt at the time, right? And then they lied about it. So that's a big answer that I have to get to, right? Uh, my short answer was, yes, I think that's a, that is an okay time to not submit. We have a clear, um, clear commands not to murder. So I, I, I think, obviously, we need a much broader discussion on where that line is. Were they okay to lie about it? It's harder for me. Um, I don't know if I'm decided on that. The, 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 I've heard the question, what if, like in World War II, you were hiding Jews, and you asked, are there any Jews here? I think a lot of Christian ethicists would say it is okay to lie because they have no right to that knowledge. That would be the kind of argument they would use. And other people would say, you know what? I can't lie, and I'll leave the results to God. Um, I don't know if that one's as clear to me, but you're asking me like three Sunday school series to answer that kind of question. That's because it's a good question. <laughs> All right, we are out of time. Guy, would you mind closing us in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, as we uh, prepare to uh, a uh, turbulent political season due to our Elections, Father, we would ask that you would give each one here, um, everyone who hears your voice, would you give us the grace to love our neighbors, love those who uh, disagree with us, love others who have different political parties, and most of all, Father, I pray that you would work uh, in each of our hearts and, and root out some of the idols that that we carry around uh, so that we might give you greater glory and honor and be better uh, witnesses of your love to this dying world. Now, as we uh, come and prepare our hearts for worship, we would ask that you would uh, give us the grace to do that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.